Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is November 5th, 2018, Election Eve. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by our premier number cruncher, David Byler, and by Chris Deaton of the Weekly Standard. Are you ready for this? You ready to uh, throw down <laughs> predictions? <laughs> David, David yes. you're going to come up with an actual number, which is very cool. Thanks. I mean, yeah. you know, this goes on your permanent record, you know. I mean, people can go back and listen to this. They, they won't, but, you know, people could, <laughs> you know, later. Yeah. And say all these things. Well, we, we're going to do that in just a moment because, of course, there's a last-minute polls coming in. I want to get a sense of uh, what people are thinking. Before we do this, could we just I just take a deep breath? And I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what happened on Saturday Night Live over the weekend where one of the cast members, the uh, decidedly unfunny Peter Davidson. Anybody wanted to say that, no, I find Peter Davidson really funny? No? No. Anyway. He decided that it was a good idea, or somebody decided it was a good idea, to have him go on and mock the appearance of uh, a Republican congressional candidate named Dan Crenshaw, who's also a veteran. This is what he said. He said, Dan Crenshaw, showing a picture of him with an eye patch. you may be surprised to hear he's a congressional candidate from Texas and not a hitman in a porno movie. Uh, Giggling, Davidson added, I'm sorry, I know he lost his eye in war or whatever. The whatever. And, of yeah. course, people are going, are, are you kidding me? Seriously? Are, are you kidding me? And, of course, you're getting the what about is. And, well, of course, the president also mocked uh, the, you know, the disabled and he, and he you know, mocked uh, John McCain. But the, the problem with what about is that, is that you, you, of course, can be completely offended by both things. They do, they, and they do not cancel each other out, do they? Yeah, wrong is wrong. I think that sometimes we uh... – Forget that, Charlie. I mean, when everything rushes to whataboutism, I, I think that there's a such thing as having a, a moral compass, even in these bizarre times, uh, to just call out something for being wrong when it's wrong. Kenan Thompson did that. Pete Davidson's own uh, castmate said, uh, I think the quote was, he definitely missed the mark on that one. So, yeah, missed miss the mark seems a little bit, a little bit soft. Uh, so, as a as a marker of our bizarre times, I had tweeted out over the weekend, you know, who thought this was a good idea, and I got a response. And this, I'm not making this up like all the stuff I told you before we went on the air here. Um, I got a response from Tom Arnold. Really? <laughs> yes, really. Who says this is his explanation? That Pete was just trying to subtly make fun of himself, but not everybody is Larry the Cable Guy. Not everybody is as you know on point as Larry the Cable Guy. Let's be honest, no one is as funny as Larry the Cable Guy. Which hmm. I'm not sure is much of a defense, right? Because I don't know what that is about. I dis I okay. disagree with the premise there too. <laughs> I do okay. not think that Larry the Cable Guy is at the tops of funny comedians. I don't either. I don't. I don't get any of this. Okay, now um, everybody. It, it is. It is interesting. And, and David, I, I, I do do admire the fact that you're making a prediction here, because what I'm noticing, and you tell me whether I'm off on this, because there's we have a blizzard of numbers. The polls that we're seeing, the district by district polls, particularly in the House races, seem to be breaking toward the Democrats at the last moment. But there are a lot of, you know, the talking heads, the pundits on cable television who are being very, very skeptical, you know, are, you know, holding open the possibility of, uh, you know, a big surprise, uh, you know, a la you know, 2016. 
And 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 my theory on this is that a lot of pundits, number crunchers, pollsters are still suffering from PTSD from what happened two years ago. And so mm-hmm. everybody is like, I do not want to call this. I think I know what's going to happen, but I don't want to be the guy that has the the dial on election night saying that you know Hillary Clinton has a ninety nine point nine percent chance of winning. And mm-hmm. oh crap, look what's happened by ten o'clock. So y- you apparently are unburdened by PTSD. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd say that I'm unburdened by PTSD. Maybe I've just been kind of burdened by uncertainty for this whole time. I don't know. My, my, my thinking on this is that uh, to take to your first point, I think people obsess a lot about late movement. And I don't think it's as big of a deal as people think. And what I mean by that is suppose we had this amount of movement in the polls two months ago everyone's response would have been, okay, that's interesting. Let's see if it holds up. Let's wait a week. Let's wait two weeks. Let's just see if it's noise or not. And we can't really do that now because election day is tomorrow. So I think, you know, my, my response to that is, you know, trying to be consistent is that let's see if this is noise or if this is real movement when we see the results tomorrow. And that the real source of error to be cognizant of is polling error and the idea that our data as it is now is off. I think that mm. is a concept that it's is hard to underrate. And that's really what burned people in 2016 was not realizing that the polls, one, could be off and two, could kind of be off in the same direction in all the important races. So I, I don't blame people for, uh, you know, boosting uncertainty at this time, because honestly, the data we have, if it's off in one direction or it's off in the other direction, could lead to, you know, really divergent results. But we can will, still also make kind of a most likely outcome. If that yeah, I mean, just, just breaking, breaking this down on numbers, you, you have a one or two point shift in, in, in reality. One way or another is the difference between a, you know, a, a light rain and a, and a blue tsunami. I mean, these things can break in very, very big ways. The The range of possibilities is rather extraordinary. I mean, you've been tracking this all year long. I mean, the Democratic path to, to a majority is very, very narrow. I mean, their, their fantasy would be that they pick up a seat in Nevada, right? Uh, Arizona, mm-hmm. Texas, you know, not Texas, uh, Tennessee, which would give them plus three. They're probably going to lose in South Dakota. Um you know, so, you know, that, that that's almost the best case scenario is plus two. But the Republican path, I mean, they could pick up a seat in South Dakota, in Missouri, who knows, Montana, Florida, looking less likely, West Virginia. So you could be looking at a potential and you and you've been predicting this all along, plus five. But I do wonder, and Chris, I'd like to get your take before we get back into the numbers here. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, 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 it is, I think, objectively puzzling why the Republicans are closing, well, Trump is, is closing the argument the way he is. The economy, the economic numbers that came out last Friday really couldn't be better. I mean, mm-hmm. we could quibble about them, but they're they're absolutely outstanding. They have a tremendous story to tell uh, about uh, the, the impact on f- fiscal stimulus, uh, the jobless rate, wages are, are starting to, to rise. Mm-hmm. And yet the three words that are hanging in my head from the weekend are beautiful barbed wire, beautiful barbed wire following the president deciding to make an issue of whether or not he can amend the constitution by an executive order on birthright, uh, birthright citizenship. And, and you wonder, you know, just give me your, your sense on the decision and the possible impact of Donald Trump closing with a rather sort of dark message 
you know, going all in on the caravan and immigration mm-hmm. at a time when people like Paul Ryan are reportedly calling him up saying, would you talk about the, the economy, Mr. President? Mm-hmm. So two things here. I think that there is a way to frame closing with the immigration message as a policy choice that the Republican Party or Trump, um, the head of the Republican Party, thinks it's most important to emphasize the border security policy message versus the economic prosperity message. But I think that immigration is so wrapped up in this continuation of the culture war that Trump wants to emphasize culture over economic numbers. And I don't know if there are internal Republican polls that would lead him to believe it's a good idea. I don't know if it's because Trump just can continue to not restrain himself in hardly any way whatsoever. I don't know what the explanation for it is, but I do think it is wrapped up in that cultural versus policy message. And the second thing that I was going to mention is that I I wrote about this a little bit last week about the implications that economic numbers have for midterm elections as opposed to presidential elections. We have heard the James Carville, it's the economy stupid quip Mm -hmm. uh, numbers and numbers of times over the years when it comes to breaking down what voters end up voting on. Is it their pocketbooks? Is it something else? The literature, the, 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 the learned research, the academics really have concluded over the years that in midterm elections, the economy really doesn't seem to be much of a factor. There just is no statistical correlation between hmm. economic hmm. numbers in any which direction and the outcomes of presidential elections. And that's not to say that uh, midterm elections end up being specifically referendums on the president or they end up specifically being ways to check whatever party it is in power. Who knows what the exact reason is there because there's going to be a lot of statistical white noise trying to parse all of that out. The upshot simply is that economics don't really factor in that much in midterm elections. So Republicans could have a positive message. They could talk about you know, regardless of it being the economy or something else, emphasizing that, yes, we've had 3% wage growth year over year. The economy is still growing. We hit 4% GDP growth a couple of quarters ago. It's still above three in a quarterly basis. You have this 3.7% unemployment rate, which is the lowest in 50 years. These are compelling things. But beyond just the economic message itself, it's oriented positively. It gets people in a good mood. You want to vote because times are good. Mm-hmm. And Trump keeps yeah. continuing to emphasize that times are bad, migrant caravans, barbed wire fences. We have to make sure we protect the country. It's a very, very bizarre uh, polarity that he has to, to the way that he campaigns on stuff. You know, yeah, you, you were right. I mean, the you, you look at the dynamic of this election and it's it's about uh, the, the electorate is splintering along educational lines and gender lines rather than uh, on, on economic lines. But it is going to be interesting, um, in, you know, here in the state of Wisconsin, I'm actually in New York right now, but, but back home, um, you know, Scott Walker's kind of hanging on, and his his whole pitch is on the economy. Is that the economy is good? The jobless rate is 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 down. Wages are up. You know, don't screw this up. You know, don't don't. Mm-hmm. You know, let's keep our forward momentum. He's sort of testing whether or not that message can can work. But I guess you know part of it is that, and I, and I was with a bunch of Republicans yesterday, and and uh, you know, I there's. A lot of reasons why people are voting, and they're all going to be voting for Republican candidates, um, regardless of of, of Trump. Uh, they're going to they're going to vote for you know for Scott Walker because of his record. In fact, I don't think that there's any evidence that any Republican is not going to support Walker in Wisconsin because of Donald Trump. On the other hand, so you 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 don't have any you know subtraction. The problem is the addition, and they're getting killed among independents. Uh, this message 
this sort of nativist message is is not the kind that's going to be driving the voters who are really going to be making making the decision. And I guess part of it is that, and I, I was I, you know, I, I tread very very softly on these conversations, but um, again, not not questioning their motivation. But if the Republicans do win tomorrow or do really exceed expectations, it is going to be seen, I think, by Trump and by many of his supporters as a validation of this uh, of, of of the politics of of anger and division and fear. It's going to be a uh, it, it's going to validate um, the effectiveness of playing on you know the anxiety of the caravan, which is uh, invading us, you know, and the and the immigrants who are going to come in and, and you know rape and murder and take your jobs and all of those things. So you know, which 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 I think would be a very, very unfortunate take on this. On the other hand, I guess, if in fact Republicans have a very bad night, and I'm not sure what that will be. We'll get to that in a moment because I think that everybody's going to have something to brag about. Just trust me. Uh, I think you know Donald Trump's going to come out and he's going to claim that it's a big victory no matter what happens. Um, but it might get. Do you think, Chris, it will get some Republicans to think that uh, that maybe they've been pushing the racialized nativist line too far and that maybe it's got it, they reached the point of diminishing returns oh god i hope so uh, i mean <laughs> I, <hope> so <laughs> I mean if, if if for no other reason than it's simply a matter of right and wrong i mean i charlie i'm there has been a lot of talk recently about the politics of lee atwater and the southern strategy even before that and the way that the Republican Party has coded their, um, and, and this is coded as mm -hmm. in C-O-A-T and also C-O-E-D uh, coded, both uh, both terms there in the homonym works of, of their racial message over, you know, the years. What 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 kind of uh, sheen do they, do they put on this? Do they, you know, try to put their racial politics with, you know, certain policies? Do they come out and say things explicitly? There's a candidate running for Congress in New York named Antonio Delgado, and he's running against John Faso, and the NRCC yeah. is running re running advertisements against this candidate that are racist. I mean, they're, they're, they're showing the man in, in a hoodie, and it, it, it has this still image of him looking menacing, and they have another advertisement in which they're making fun of his past rap career. Antonio Delgado is a part black man in a 90% white district. And it's gross. It's disgusting. And, and Faso's it, one of the good guys, though, right? I mean, Faso is, is, is not, I mean, he's not Steve King. Right. And, he, and he's also relatively new to Congress, if I, yeah. if I remember correctly. So he doesn't have quite the track record of, um, you know, some of these other, uh, other lawmakers. But you have, a, you, you have a, a, a campaign like that and you have these other messages throughout the country where it's becoming more of an explicit thing, Charlie. And, and, and this is yeah. not good for the country. I worry sometimes when we do this whole, you know, uh, we're above this and this is not who we are. Mm -hmm. Actually, no. I'm, I think it actually is who we are sometimes. And that's if the problem. It were, if it works, it is who we are. See, that that's, that's the scary thing. You know, that's the, and, and I go back and forth between thinking that maybe we're just revealing something that was always there, that we were always like this, or it was latent and it's being encouraged. But but you're right. I mean, it's uh, the 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 comparison to Lee Atwater. I think are somewhat unfair to Lee Atwater because mm -hmm. there is no subtlety here whatsoever. You know that one ad that uh, that uh, Trump was was pushing, the one with right. the, the 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 cop killer that was aired. I think rather strangely on NBC and MSNBC. They've now pulled it. CNN refused to run it. Did you see that David Duke tweeted out about it yesterday? Oh, I didn't. Go Trump, go exclamation point. Your midterm ad is a masterpiece personifying the insanity of our immigration policy. Bravo, Trump, exclamation point. Uh, 
That's one of those moments where you realize, okay, I'm sorry, if if the tribe includes David Duke, I don't want to be part of this tribe. Ugh. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yes, words. Uh, yeah. yeah, and and that's that's the that's my fear that and I'm I was heading to think I, I know the people who are going to be voting for you know re- Republicans and they're good people. They're 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 not. They themselves are not voting to validate this, but it will be seen as a validation, and I think that that's really really dangerous. Okay, let's get into. Uh, let's get into the the number crunching. Um, the three sexiest races in America. Tell, tell me what the three sexiest states in America, um, besides Wisconsin, of course, uh, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. Would you agree with me there? Yeah. Chris, you want to throw in your 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 you're kind of jazzed about Nevada, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm just uh, because and Nevada's always sexy, right? And Dean Heller's, you know, well, they got Vegas, you know. Dean Heller, Dean Heller seems like a unicorn. I mean, in a in a year where, um, you know, Heller was was targeted as such a vulnerable Republican years out that he was going to be the one guy who could fall on the fact that he's hanging in this thing fascinates me. Well, you know, it, the, we'll we'll see on that. It looked like he was hanging in there, but then over the weekend we started getting these reports from John Ralston, who's sort of the the uh, the rain man of uh, of Nevada politics, uh, saying that the the turnout in the Democratic is- the districts, the the uh, the early voting was was really off the charts, and and Nevada is kind of also kind of a unicorn because you have the unions which have such tremendous power, and that interplay between the unions and the Hispanic vote, I don't think takes place anywhere else. And of course, there's no path for the Republicans to uh, win the. Uh, I'm sorry, for the Democrats to win the House of Represent. I mean, win the Senate um, without winning Nevada. Is that right, uh, David? I mean, there's just no way. I mean, there's weird paths here and there, but basically, Democrats need to run the table or come close to it in order to take the Senate, and that involves Nevada and you know the vast majority of scenarios where that happens. Um, I think you're right to point out Georgia on the governor's side is really interesting. Um, you know, there's Betomania in Texas, there's Florida, there's the governor and the Senate race. I guess I'd add Indiana and Arizona to that mix if I had to, you know. Indiana's never going to be sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Other than Wisconsin, Charlie, if if Wisconsin counts, Indiana gets in there. Yeah, I I like that, David. I like how that sounds, man. Native Hoosier here. (laughs) Yeah. David, delete your account. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So those, we're having some late-breaking polls in Florida. Um, if they are accurate, would indicate that Democrats are poised to have a very big night there. And that, that, that has more than symbolic value. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is an, an interesting thing. So I have kind of been thinking for most of this cycle that the polls might move towards the fundamentals in Florida. And by that, I mean that, you know, it's a swing state and a democratic year with a democratic incumbent, you know, that's, that's a recipe for an easy democratic win in the Senate races in uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, Michigan, it appears Wisconsin maybe as well. Um, and it hasn't translated quite that way into Florida, but you're seeing kind of a break in that direction, sort of towards the end. I don't want to get ahead of myself because the model still gives Scott about a one in five chance, which is pretty close to where we've had him almost this entire time. But you know, that's an interesting thing because people are attributing that late movement. At least some people are attributing it to Gillum's candidacy for his ability to energize uh, African-American voters and sort of the liberal base. But I kind of wonder if this would have happened in Florida anyways. And it's just the race going where it naturally wants to go, kind of like 
Arizona becoming close or Tennessee moving right and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. So, okay. I have a really wonky question to ask here. Okay. Yeah. The, in, in Florida, it seems that uh, the, the races for governor and Senate are going to track very, very closely together mm-hmm. that, uh, that the Gillum might actually pull Nelson across the line for, uh, for, for, for the Democrats and De- DeSantis and Nelson will probably get similar votes. Why is that so linked together in a way that it is not at all in Texas? In Texas, you have the Republican governor who is cruising by high double digits. I mean, what, how, how far ahead is he? Uh, a is, lot. Is it, I haven't yeah. even been tracking that yeah. race. It's just yeah, I mean, no, no, nobody's tracking that race, you know, but yeah. of course, uh, he, the, obviously the numbers in the Senate race, um, I, I think Cruz is likely to win here, but um, still much, much closer. So in Texas, people are not voting straight ticket between Senate and governor, but they are in Florida. Any theories on that? My, I have a couple theories on that. One, uh, in Texas, people have pointed out that, you know, O'Rourke is a better quality candidate than Valdez, which involves some judgment calls and involves some, you know, trying to look at things based on money and rallies and so on and so forth. So that's that's one plausible answer. But I kind of think that in Florida, what you have in the governor's race is a real cultural clash. You know, you have DeSantis, who is sucking up to Trump in every way possible and imitating him in every way possible. And you have Gillum, who is a, you know, uh, pretty left-ish uh, Democratic candidate. You know, like I said earlier, he's African-American. He's kind of, in a way, uh, a good representation of the current iteration of the Democratic Party. And so you have this sort of cultural clash. And that, in a way, reflects our national politics. A lot of our national politics is a, is a clash that's kind of based on culture more than it is on economics or class, which has been the case in the past. So mm. my my thinking is that that's kind of shaping both of the things that are are happening here, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, right next door in Georgia, that race has gotten incredibly ugly in the last couple of days um, with a lot of a lot of the back and forth on on the issue of of alleged voter suppression, which of course uh, is not helped by the fact that the uh, Republican candidate for governor is also the uh, the Secretary of State, and who appears to be not not terribly shy about using his position as Secretary of State um, yeah. to uh, to influence the governor's race. But that would be a stunning upset. I mean, you, you know, you looking back on Wednesday morning, if Gillum wins in Florida and Stacey Abrams wins in Georgia, I mean, that will be uh, I mean, th- 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 those will be headline races. And and that seems plausible, at least w- at least one of them. It is plausible. It's also plausible that Georgia goes to a runoff. Um, but I think that there's there's a couple sort of reasons that people are excited about this uh, general reason region and really interested in this general region. I honestly think that there are some parts of the Democratic Party that are or. I don't know if I'd say honestly. Anyways, I, there are some parts of the Democratic Party that are thinking that one strategy going forward would be better, which is more of a win back the upper Midwest, um, run someone who's a little bit less culturally left-ish on stuff. You can see uh, real stylistic differences between, say, a Joe Biden and a Hillary Clinton and, you know, kind of go in that direction to try to win next time. And I think there's some camps within the Democratic Party that would uh, like to just find a different route and be uh, really, really to the left on policy and see if that works in some of these sort of 
Sun Belt and southeastern states. So I think sort of the conversation beneath the conversation on Georgia and Arizona and Nevada is the same as the conversation that's beneath the conversation in Texas, which is, are these states competitive now? Is this kind of a different way that the map can be rejiggered to sort of make the battle lines different and um, have kind of a lefter version of the Democratic Mm. Party fighting with a Trumpier version of the Republican Party? And so I think that kind of question and that conversation is driving some of the interest uh, in these races. And that's, you know, in addition to the profiles of the candidates themselves, the consequences for legislation, so on and so forth. Now, Chris, you've you've, you've been watching Arizona as well, correct? Mm hmm. So to tell me, where, where are we at here? I mean, I, I, the polls seem on the outside to be all over the place. I mean, I've seen polls showing McSally ahead. I've seen the polls showing Kristen Cinema ahead. Mm-hmm. What, do, what, do you, what is your gut sense the way things are going right now? Yeah, I think I saw one that had McSally up six in the last few yep. days, and I also saw one that had Cinema up a, a, a couple of points. Uh, so there seems to be quite a lot of variation there. Um, Arizona is an interesting state to me. Uh, you know, David, of course, is, is 100 times more qualified to, to, to comment on, on this sort of assessment than me. Uh, but it just sticks out because it, it sticks out like a sore thumb next to Mexico, which has gone very, very blue. Um, and Colorado is tilting very blue. And yet Arizona continues to kind of be this red state that, uh, you know, has had sent a somewhat moderate, obviously now a moderate Republican retiring in Jeff Flake and sent McCain to the Senate for all of those years. It's Republican Governor Doug Ducey. I mean, he's he's a Republican, um, you know, so who's cruising to reelection. Exactly. There's 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 no contest there. So all of those fundamental things just make me think that McSally is going to pull this out because I, I don't know if David has talked in the past, I think, very, very intelligently about, you know, how how are you supposed to measure candidate quality race by race? And I think that on an objective basis, given her background, given the kind of campaign that I believe she's run, I admit I haven't paid, you know, super, super close attention to it, but I've, you know, heard no real bad news and no real bad news is certainly good news for a candidate like McSally who has, you know, her background and seems to have tethered herself to Trump just the right way. Um, I, I would imagine that just based on those things, she's going to pull it out by a couple of points, but it's a strange state. Yeah, it is a strange state. Now, the, one of the reasons why I, I sort of teed up the sexiest states, which, which, and by the way, I'm not challenging that. You know, Georgia, Florida, and Texas, all the, the you know, sucked up all of the attention. Probably about ninety percent of all the conversations have been about those states. Maybe missing what may be one of the biggest stories of the midterm, which is what's happening up in the industrial Midwest. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased here, but you know, you think about um, the Trump presidency is basically goes through Pennsylvania. Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And it's certainly possible that Democrats are going to run the table in all of those states. There's no indication that uh, the, the Trump popularity is carrying anyone uh, to victory in any of those key states. Now, it's a, it's a competitive race uh, for, for governor in Ohio, and Scott Walker's in a very, very tough but competitive race in Wisconsin. But the U.S. Senate seats are not even on the radar screen at all. So, um, if, if in fact the the whole point of you know the the analysis that Trump had rewritten the electoral map by stealing th- those particular states, uh, I do think the results. You feel free to disagree with me on this, but I mean you know the results there would certainly indicate that uh, there's not a lot of staying power. I mean Pennsylvania yeah. would say it's going to be a wipeout for the Republicans. Yeah, I mean the the hot take that I have on this is that 
you know, it, this is kind of like politics working in a similar way to the way that it's always worked. If you add a new group of people into your coalition and you win them over in one election, but they voted the other way a bunch of other times, they can still vote the other way. These are swing voters, not the you know permanent face of your new party. So it to me, it kind of makes sense that there's some level of recession in the uh, in Republican margins in the industrial Midwest. I would think that if uh, Trump had governed a bit differently, or if we had a you know President Walker or President somebody with you know maybe a Trumpian strategy electorally that was a bit different politically. Anyways, if if we had kind of a different thing coming out of the White House, then I do think that maybe that recession wouldn't be so bad. Uh, maybe you would have some ability for Republicans to sort of keep some of those voters in a midterm environment. But to me, it's it's a it's a really, really odd thing because so many things about policy and so many things about sort of Congress and the way things work uh, seem to be totally different than before. But a lot of this sort of older rules of elections still kind of hold. Yeah, apparently now, Chris, you, you mentioned you're a Hoosier of of the states in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Indiana is the only one where it looks like Republicans are still, you know, possibly could do quite, quite well. Um, but really no prospect in the, you know, in, in any of the other Midwestern states. And, you know, that will have implications for 2020. Oh, sure it will. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, it, David's point is, is, is terrific. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love when, when people are able to uh, soberly assess how politics are so static when we think they're so unpredictable sometimes. And David just did that very ably. I, I mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder um, when, when 2020 comes around, you know, I, I was just talking to a buddy about this, uh, you know, the other day about Ohio. Ohio is a state that's elected both Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown. I mean, <laughs> you know, Sherrod Brown is a protectionist, hard left Democrat, and Rob Portman is a relatively conservative Republican, especially on policies, wonky and quiet and fits the state's personality very well, but two very different lawmakers and then a very moderate Republican governor and John Kasich. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really see a state like Ohio really charging hard to the right in 2020, and Ohio's permanently become a red state, just like David said. Ohio has a lot of things in common with Pennsylvania to a certain extent, and I don't I don't see any real reason why it wouldn't be a swing state again. So, Well, this is what's interesting. So in Wisconsin, of course, we've also elected Tammy Baldwin, who is far, mm-hmm. pretty far left, and Ron Johnson, who is, you know, right, really came out right. of the, 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 the Tea Party. And you could say, and I know that, you know, our liberal listeners won't agree, but, you know, Scott Walker is, is particularly has been trying to be more center-right but this is where the the emphasis on on beautiful barbed wire, uh, birthright citizenship, uh, you know, sending troops to the border. You wonder whether or not that appeals to states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Minnesota, which look like they were looking around for a new identity. And I, I think that those issues may play in some parts of the country. But I think really, I, I really have a question about it. And, you know, I, and, and again, I, I know Wisconsin better than some of the other states. But one of the reasons why I think Tammy Baldwin's going to win easily tomorrow will be that the Republican Senate candidate, Leah Vukmer, went all in, not just as, in, as Trumpist, but all in on the immigration issues, which are not on the front burner of places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Minnesota. Yeah, they don't. Well, hey, let's uh, switch now to uh, the House of Representatives because um, 
David, you are making a call on all of this. Boy, the predictions are everything. I mean, are all over the the, the map. Uh, uh, the magic number, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 23. Democrats need to pick up 23, 24 seats, if, uh, depending yeah. on uh, so mid-20s. Yeah, it depends on uh, how you count the vacant seats. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. So, so it, you know, that's um, it. Most of the models would suggest that they are likely to do that. What do you say? You've spent most of your time projecting on the Senate races. What are you seeing on the House? Call your number. Yeah, yeah. Here so today I published a piece <laughs> where I made the case for two twenty-eight as the final Democratic number of seats. When all is said and done, I've uh, it's a I majority build- of ten, right? It's a yep. majority of ten. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, and that's that's based on a couple things. I don't have you know a large scale stats model for the House in the same way that I do for the Senate, but I've been writing about it and I've been thinking about it. And essentially, I just grouped the races together based on competitiveness. Uh, kind of tried to count things up. Gave Democrats about half the toss ups. Gave them some upsets in red territory. Gave them you know, almost everything in blue territory, but still allowed the Republicans to uh, grab a couple of seats. And the math worked out to about 228. Um, There's a wide margin for error around this because, you know, there's about two dozen seats that I would say are right in sort of the pure toss-up territory where the polling that you have from the upshot and elsewhere uh, suggests extremely, you know, close races. And if Democrats get, you know, half of those or if you do the math differently, you might make the case for a third. But if Democrats get a significant chunk of those, then they could get over the 218 line. But if Republicans kind of do a little bit better than the polls suggest, you start to see uh, those upsets disappear from the lightly red territory. You uh, start to see some of those toss ups go the other way. And you get into a situation where the Republicans sustain some losses because, you know, the president's party almost never gains House seats in a midterm. Um, where the Republican Party sustains some losses, but they're able to hold on. And I mean, the flip side of that is the uh, Democratic tsunami, which I think has been talked about a lot. Yeah. Okay. So that uh, tsunami, let's let's define our terms here. So a a wave, you would describe, I'm guessing, 228 as a wave, right? You know, that's that's, that's 33 seats, am I roughly? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I kind of, grown to hate the term wave during this election because <laughs> I, th- I think it's a term that everyone has a different definition for. So I guess the way that I'm thinking about this is 228 Democratic seats would qualify as a below average midterm election for Trump. If we just toss the word wave for a second, that would qualify as, you know, in a normal midterm, the president's party loses about two dozen seats. That would be 30 some seat loss. It would be a below average uh, sort of performance. Uh, it would above be average for the Democrats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it would be below average performance for the Republicans. Right, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but it wouldn't be an unheard of, you know, tsunami like historic outcome for the Democrats to take control of the chamber and gain 30 some seats. If the Democrats ended up in the two fifties or two sixties, uh, <laughs> I think you could use the term wave and that would apply. But I, I think that the sort of most likely scenario is that, you know, Republicans lose the House by a margin that is thinkable but below average. And you can call that a wave if you want. But in historical context, that's kind of how I'm thinking of it. OK, so, um, you know, we, we still have 24 hours to get through all of this. But uh, 
when Wednesday morning, what I'm seeing is that Republicans, you know, people on Fox are going to be talking about the Senate and everybody else is going to be talking about the House. That that you're gonna you you you'll pick the election you want to talk about. So um, you will see President Trump declaring victory if the Republicans pick up seats in the Senate, which seems to be you know certainly quite plausible. Mm-hmm. And Democrats will be talking about uh, you know how they have flipped the House of Representatives. So there's something for everybody. I mean, there's participation trophies all around. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's true. It seems like the most likely outcome is a split decision. It's one where. Uh, so my Senate model has the most likely outcome being Republicans at 52 seats when this is all over, netting one seat with the possibility of, you know, potentially losing, though that's unlikely, but the possibility of winning a lot more. And I mean, yeah, there's there's something for everything here. It just all depends on how you pick oh, okay, okay. your baselines. So, all right. So when, when we're when we're watching, when, when we're sitting around watching, um, is there is there any particular house seats that you're looking at that will tell you how big this wave is going to be. I mean, if we see um, certain seats in New Jersey going, if Pete Sessions is is defeated, if Steve King goes down, does that tell you something? Are there other seats? I see, by the way, the Georgia 6 is back in play. Mm-hmm. You know, remember, remember when we all obsessed about Georgia 6 being the center yeah. of the universe and, you know, John Ossoff was the, was he the Beto O'Rourke? No, he was never Beto O'Rourke, but, but <laughs> all of the focus on him. But that seat is now back in play will will that be one of the one of the bellwethers for you that's one of them um i kind of think of this uh in a couple different ways i'm interested in maine second um because that's a district that has a lot of obama to trump voters it's sort of um a wider district that's uh, a little more secularized so it's it's it tells us something about a specific type of voter and if we see a big recession in Republican margins there that might tell us something about kind of the non-suburban battlegrounds that are uh, in these different states like Minnesota um, and elsewhere in the country. I am interested in Michigan's eighth. Uh, Georgia six is another good one to watch. Virginia's 10th is another good one to watch. There's really a lot of Eastern or central time zone sort of suburbia land districts that you can look at as your bellwether for what that sort of segment of the vote is. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, in, in addition to those, I'd say main second, and I'd say some of the more uh, diverse districts where Republicans are uh, currently holding is, are th- those ones are interesting. So Florida 26 and 27, Texas 23, there are more districts sort of in that mold than I think people sometimes think. So that's kind of how I'd size up the whole mm-hmm. bellwether question. You know, um, speaking going going back to some of the substance of this, while the president is closing on on immigration, I think I was telling you guys this before we we, we started. Um, w- when you get down to the ground and you look at the ads that are being run, the 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 debate seems to be overwhelmingly driven by health care. And it really is extraordinary to me to watch the way the script has been flipped. Republicans have been weaning on health care in election after election since 2010. And yet I would say that well over half of the ads on both sides in Wisconsin, where I watch television, um, are about the whole question of pre-existing conditions. And the Republican candidates will tell you publicly or privately that they are just getting pummeled on this particular issue. Um, And so, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, if Democrats do very well, Maybe people will talk about the Trump, the Trump factor, the immigration question, all of that that we let off with. 
But Chris, um, this is also going to be the first election that I can remember where the Democrats may have an advantage on health care. Oh yeah, and it's a big one. It's it's fascinating the, the, this pre-existing conditions thing. It's one slice of a very large bill uh, that Republicans for a long time just kind of threw in as a kicker. It polled well. Okay, Obamacare's pre-existing conditions protections have consistently been the most popular feature of Obamacare. It polls in like the 80s of favorability. So naturally, if you're a Republican who's wanting to replace the law, you're out there saying on a political basis, the individual mandate is bad. It's an unfair tax. The employer mandate is bad. It's an unfair tax. You have IPAB, which are these death panel things, and you message on all mm-hmm. of that stuff. All of these things are complementary components of the pre-existing conditions stuff, Charlie. And, and what Republicans never fully appreciated until last year was just how central those protections are mm-hmm. to what the law mm-hmm. does. Bill Cassidy, a Republican senator, took out an op-ed in CNN a few days ago where he was complaining about that very thing of this being one part of a very large bill, something like nine pages of a 951-page bill. Those nine pages are really, really important, Charlie. I mean, they're central to the law, and you can't just cast them aside because Republicans have not been able to offer – any sort of sensible, complete to fruition uh, policy replacement for what Obamacare does on that issue, they're just getting kicked around like a rag doll, and it's not going to stop. And it's because they haven't been able to come up with the policy solution. They're getting killed in the politics because of that. And there are we, we want to point out that there are conservative slash libertarian Republicans who oppose mandates. That insurance companies mm-hmm. cover pre-existing conditions. I mean, there there is actually political opposition. I actually had a conversation with somebody saying, "I don't understand." Every Republican that I know understood that this would be the most popular part of Obamacare, and I'm surprised that they did not do something in order to protect themselves. And the response I got was, "Well, you know, it's not like we didn't try, but you know, don't underestimate." Um, the fact that there are people, you know, in in legislatures who uh, oppose this. So, so now Republicans are running, saying, "I will throw myself in front of a bus before I allow them to take away your protections for pre-existing <laughs> condition." Or you can absolutely count on me, which really sounds not just defensive; it just doesn't sound that persuasive. It, it I mean, and and they're clearly fighting a rearguard action on all of this. And I know that there are Republicans in races that that uh, David would probably regard as, you know, relatively safe or certainly a likely Republican who are really, really nervous the way this is playing out. Because, I mean, this this is this is one that affects people in a very visceral way, say, uh, in a very different way than whether they should be afraid of, you know, people in a caravan, you know, 2,000 miles away. Oh, absolutely. That's this, this thing is the very definition of voting your pocketbook, Charlie. I mean, when a lot of consumers, because the big thing is that the individual insurance market in the country, the non-group market, you're not covered by a government plan or employer-sponsored insurance or any of that. It only comprises something like 10 or 11 million people. So we're not right. talking about a very huge, small. You're yeah. not talking about a huge chunk of the country. The fear has always been a consumer saying, you know what? I may not always have my job. And if I don't always have my job and I have to go out on this individual insurance market and I have to shop for an insurance plan, I want to make sure that I am covered 
when it comes to this issue of me having a prior health condition, for example, and I don't want to be charged more or denied insurance based on that. And like you said, Charlie, there are Republicans who oppose that idea in principle. Very plainly, if you allow insurers to charge more money, you're going to incentivize more insurers to remain in the market. But Republicans have always, you know, kind of generally said that we have this, you know, really big issue of cost here. So we understand we're going to have to make that up on the back end. Let's just go ahead and subsidize people for the difference directly. So it becomes a matter of regulating versus taxes, which is a debate that Republicans have not parsed out in full. But they haven't been able to explain that thing fully. And therefore, those voters who are concerned about this pre-existing condition stuff don't really understand what alternatives could be out there and judge for themselves whether or not they're even a good idea. And that's part of the problem, Charlie, when mm. in an era mm. like ours, politics trumps everything and the policy gets left aside completely. Exactly. Okay, so anybody want to go out on a limb even further than you're already out uh, and predict a surprise a result that, uh, that you want to call that, that will be regarded as a surprise by the talking heads? Uh, yeah, see, this is, yeah. Um, I mean, like, well, B- I, the Beto way, the way that I think about this. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't Beto O'Rourke be the headline surprise? I mean, that would just be, oh, my God, you know? Not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. So. I'm not, I wouldn't want to predict an O'Rourke win. My thinking on this is that they're going to be surprises. It's just the way these things work. An election never goes exactly according to the numbers, never goes exactly according to the plan. In fact, like most models, mine included, um, plan for surprises and try not to guess which one. If I had to go against the model in one of them, I would say Braun in Indiana would be kind of one Mm. thing where I would predict against the polls that there would be a Republican win right now. Um, the model projects, uh, you know, very small Democratic advantage and hasn't projected a Republican advantage, you know, in months and months. So that if I, if I had to, to guess an upset, that would be the one I'd, I'd go for. Hmm. Chris, you want to go ahead and limb? Uh, yeah, Titans over the Cowboys tonight. Oh, no, we're talking about uh, politics. Sorry. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, one that I'm going to pay attention to very closely, and, and I don't think that the Republicans are going to end up losing this seat, but I'm so fascinated by the Nebraska second. Um, that's where mm-hmm. a candidate named Kara Eastman is running. She is one of these Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed very, very oh, progressive right. candidates. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Eastman is that she's not running in New York City. She's running in, like, Metro Omaha. So we're talking about these cases of can these sorts of democratic socialist – and I'm sitting here using my air quote sign – democratic socialist policies play in a flyover state even if it happens to be more of a metropolitan area and not just rural America. I think the only poll of that race was a New York Times poll, and it was taken about six weeks ago, and it had the Republican Don Bacon up by nine points. Um, yeah. I don't really think that he's going to lose that seat. It just – it, it would come as a, as a real shock. But I'm curious just to see the result, just how close Eastman gets, because I want to know how a candidate like that and those kinds of policies play in a place like Nebraska. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of bookend uh, uh, David's predi- prediction that uh, I think the surprise of the night might be Claire McCaskill uh, de- defying death, you know, the reports of her death. I just, you know, uh, she was, you know, really totally out of it a week ago. And there's some something in the, the something that some dynamic there that makes me wonder whether or not she could pull it off. I don't think I mean, obviously I'm I'm casting this as a surprise, but I'd be surprised. Um, speaking of surprises, I'm just assuming that Heidi Heidkamp is out. But why 
why is Pence campaigning in South Dakota? Is, and did yeah. I read that Trump's going back to South Dakota? Yeah. So with North Dakota, it's I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, North Dakota. I'm sorry. No, it's it's fine. It's it's an interesting case because I think what happened is during the Kavanaugh hearings, there were a couple polls that came out that just showed a wide kind of insane lead uh, for Kramer. And the polls after that have been pretty sparse, but they've been a little bit less. They've been high single digits instead of like, you know, low double digits. And so I do wonder, like, if, if there's a forecast, if there's a part of at least my Senate forecast that keeps me up at night, it's how certain my model is of a Republican win in North Dakota, because mm. I don't think we have as frequent or as high quality data there as we do in a lot of these other states. So I, I don't know if something's going on there. And, you know, the model would have very, the way it's built now would have very little way of picking that up. In general, it likes candidates that are up by high single, low double digit margins. And as a rule, yeah. that kind of makes sense. Um, but it's, that would uh, be a huge shock a, though. I mean, at this point that would be, that would be right up there. Yeah. And I think pollsters, I don't know that this is the case. This is just my theorizing that I think pollsters stopped measuring that race because they believed it to be over. And that's one way to miss late movement in a race, you know? Huh? That really would. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, we're going to be so much smarter 48 hours from now. And then, and then, and then we'll have a podcast uh, while we explain why everything that happened was completely predictable and inevitable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that we really knew it all along. And that, that, that if you look at our hedges, we got everything right. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Tomorrow is Election Day. And believe it or not, we will do this all over again. <laughs>